Welcome to episode 167 of Fintech Insider by 11FS. My name's Simon Taylor, and today we're bringing you the very first in a special three-part series dedicated to the investments market. Over the next three weeks, we're going to explore the huge opportunities for digital disruption across the investments value chain. If you have any questions about anything we talk about on the show or any other ideas you want to discuss or just working with us to get this stuff done, uh, do get in touch at SYTaylor on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. We'd love to discuss how we can make these concepts a reality for you. And if you're interested in this subject uh, and want to know more, episodes 170 and 173 will be our second and third installments of this series. And if you want a refresher on the investment management and asset management market, we did a basics and an overview uh, episode in episode 135. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS. Today, we're going to talk about wealth management. Uh, I'm Simon Taylor, and right now, I'm surrounded by a wealth of knowledge and experience. Oh, yeah. Went there, went there with a bad joke. It was in the show notes, Blim Laura exclusively for that. Producer Laura, thank you. Uh, we're gonna talk about wealth management uh, and to help us through wealth management, we have a wonderful panel. Uh, we have Joe Parkin, the head of UK wealth and retail at iShares from BlackRock. Joe, how are you? Very well. Thank you for being with us. We have Gemma Godfrey, founder and CEO of Moolah. Welcome, lovely to be here. Gemma, great to have you back on the show. Uh, Phil Smith, the CEO of Embark. Hey, Simon. Nice Phil, to be here. Thank you for coming along. Uh, the wonderful Olivia Vinden, uh, the tech and blockchain specialist for asset and wealth management at Alpha. Hi there. Thank you for being here. And, but by no means least, but last, uh, is Gareth Johnson, the head of digital at Bruin Dolphin. Delighted to be able to say, hey, Simon, at the start of a podcast. There you go. Uh, Long time listener, first time on the show. All right, thanks everybody for joining me today. Um, I'm gonna uh, ask somebody to, to take this one to start us off. A lot of people uh, we speak to think about wealth management as the investment advice, but there's a bit more to it than just investment advice. So what is wealth management and how does that differ from say asset management or the wider investments market? Who wants to, who wants to jump in on this one, Phil? Yeah, I'll kick us off. So I think, I think you're absolutely right to hit the problem. It's not fundamentally about managing money. It's about helping people achieve their outcomes, taking into consideration goals, taxation, unplanned circumstances, and fundamentally their starting point. Uh, asset management is an enabler, right. not, so, not the be all and end all. And I look at it, sometimes they're just stopping people doing stupid things. Uh, so they may well come and go, hey, I've seen this amazing idea, I want to put half of my wealth into that and I'm going to you know, triple my money overnight, uh, where they to kind of maybe give them a bit more of a balanced and rational view. So maybe this cryptocurrency that nobody's heard of yet might not be the biggest all investment. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> not so, going all in. And, and to Phil's point, extend that, you know, these are about life goals. People don't come to us with, um, hey, I want you know 15.23% above a benchmark or whatever. They come with, uh, I want for my retirement. I want to have to look, look after the school fees. I want to be able to buy that Ferrari in 10 years' time or whatever it is. So it's being good custodians of their wealth for them towards their goals. So it's about people and goals. And I guess, Joe, you see it from a slightly different perspective because you're supplying into people who are supplying this service to people of wealth, right? So you've got uh, wealth managers, you've got the platforms and so on. Break that apart for me a little bit. Break into the terminology. Yes, yeah, so I think the easiest way to describe it is uh, using the car analogy. Um, so, uh, 
uh, the asset managers are basically building the engines um, and some of the component parts, um, not all the component parts, um, but ultimately, you know, we can deliver an, uh, an engine that goes from A to B quickly, slowly, fuel effectively, um, environmentally, whatever it really takes. Um, I think in the industry, we've been way too guilty about focusing on the engine. Um, I think it's a bit like walking into a um, into a car studio um, and you've got a load of engines sitting there rather than the cars. And I think we're getting better as an industry, um, but ultimately that's how I would describe it. The wealth managers are trying to actually put together all the different component parts and deliver the car, whereas uh, the asset managers are trying to uh, deliver the engines. That's, that's helpful, Joe. I think um, building on that perspective, Olivia, if I could ask you to just then unpick some of the other language because we hear lots of passive funds, active funds, ET just pull that apart again because Joe, I think there's analogy of, they're all different types of car and I think Joe's analogy. So what's the pros and cons of each and what's the role really then of, of the wealth manager there? Sure. So I agree with everything that's been said. I also just probably pick up on the different types of customer for wealth, because I think that's that's an important sort of distinction that there are the sort of top end of the retail market that might be coming into investments. But then there's also the ultra high net worth up to private banking. And there's sort of different flavors of wealth management through that that sort of continuum. Um, but then to pick up on the investment types, taking active, passive. Um, active is where fund managers actively choose which funds to, which stocks to invest in or which bonds to invest in. Um, they make decisions to try and really beat benchmarks. Passives is where they just try and follow a benchmark and so tend to be, well, they're always um, much less expensive. So Gemma, um, what did you, what was your insight when you looked at the wealth market? You're founding Moolah, who's kind of getting a new platform for people to achieve goals, as we've talked about. When you looked at the wealth market across, as, as Olivia says, all the way from ultra high net worth right down to kind of the premium bank account spectrum, what was your insight and what do you think is the challenge in the market that you're trying to address? Well, it's interesting the way that you phrase the question, which is the challenge in the market that you're addressing. And it's all about trying to, there's, there's been a shift in the terms of the conversation from pushing products to actually solving problems. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason why, yeah, we started Moolah is we saw this gap in the market known as the advice gap, where there are people that, you know, have investable assets that they want to, you know, put to work, but they just don't have any access to financial advice or guidance because they fall slightly below advisor minimums, etc. But, you know, they're digitally savvy. And since the financial crisis, they do want to make decisions and what you've had is you've had the end of this era where you had um, do-it-yourself platforms only so online stockbrokers and then you had traditional wealth managers doing it completely for you and what you've now got is this era and it's good this and you've got this actually around the table that we're starting to talk more about the customer where people are saying I do kind of I do want to know where my money is I don't want to I don't want to make all the decisions myself you know because they're not they don't want to be the experts otherwise why are they going to experts but they are looking for something that is enabling them to be able to um, empower them to make smarter decisions with their money. And so on being enabled, on really understanding how they can make smarter decisions, how do you balance the kind of the education piece with making smarter decisions? I mean, I mean Phil, maybe maybe you could take oh, that. Oh, it's a huge challenge. So I think, I think the fundamental flaw in the country as a whole is financial education is really poor from schools right through later stage education. So we don't prep people for life in the way that we might. So industries have to respond to that. And financial services have done a particularly bad job in responding to it. So it uses jargon, it uses complexity, it uses fear to enable it to sell products historically. So the real, real route at hand, and, and, and of which technology is one enabling factor, is how do we change that equation? So that we're actually educating people and we're speeding up the process of learning. It's almost analogous to machine learning or AI with technology. How do we get human beings to know more to understand better what they might want, 
better understand what their options are. And crucially, and most fundamentally, is somebody knowing when they're an idiot and they need help. So it's, it's kind of being that um, personal trainer almost. It's, it's kind of, it, you're not doing it for them, but you're giving them the best possible support they can to achieve the outcome they want to. Absolutely right. If you think about life in general, what are the things that you have to manage? Safe and, safety and security and your financial well-being is a fundamental part of that and your ability to contribute to society. Fundamentally, if you can't manage your financial affairs properly, you're going to struggle with the other two things. So an industry which orients around life in its biggest extreme and enabling people to be educated and to access the things they need, whether they've got £10 to invest or £10 million to invest, is the root cause of the problem. Technology is not the solution. No disrespect to Joe, but fund managers certainly aren't the solution, and neither are platform providers and all the other component parts. It's actually helping people be educated. So what's the efficient frontier of when they need help? So, Olivia, you, as, as a consultant to the market, see the market in, in its whole. And, and I think Phil makes an interesting point. We see the market as lots of component pieces, but actually all of those have to work together as one vehicle, to butcher Joe's analogy even further. So when you step back and look at that, where are the biggest areas of opportunity from a, from a customer impact standpoint? What, what do we need to do to really understand customers better and how can we serve them better? Sure. Yeah. So I think if you think of retail banking and there only being maybe five big banks and maybe 11 extra banks, then um, asset and wealth management is totally separate to that. There are hundreds of different players and it's incredibly complex investing in different markets, investing in different asset classes, different types of customer. And so looking at that whole picture, it's just a complex world. I think one really interesting story that I've been following is the way that new players are moving into into this space. So you see that story coming out of China with Amp Financial and enabling this huge, huge new distribution disruption. So I think a similar thing could, could happen in, in the West, really, where you have asset managers who are still building the engine, as, as you described, but the wealth side of it and how you engage with customers could really be disrupted by someone like a, an Amazon for savings or an Amazon for lendings. And um, I think I think that the wealth industry hasn't been great thus far at, at really delivering, as you say, customer customer outcomes. They've been sort of a bit more traditional. And, and I think that's that's where we're really going to see the change for wealth. So Gareth, following that point for me, it, it surely I always view it and I'm quite new to the industry, so I'm still learning, but it was always distribution was here's a person and okay, yeah, you can have a website too. Yeah. Do you see that changing? Uh, yeah, I think that will change. We're a traditional bricks and mortar business. We've been around for 255 years. Uh, so so there's an element. And the, the point you just made about, uh, Olivia, about sort of um, traditional wealth management maybe hasn't served everyone. If I kind of pick that and Gemma's point earlier, it served a, a segment and I think that's the point. It served the segment. So it's not that it's completely fallen down. We're not all sitting here saying, hey, bricks and mortar. We wouldn't have been here for 255 years if that was a big old challenge. I think it's how do you get to people. And the Ant Financial is really the unbanked, isn't it? And, you know, you look across all sorts of different markets. Uh, um, Chris Skinner, who I know you guys know well, uh, he was in Sudan. 4% are banked. That means there's 20 million customers that aren't. Uh, how do you serve those people? How do you access those who, who want financial advice? I like the term Henry's high earners, not rich yet. How do you how do you serve those? Uh, and actually, the big thing for me 
and what I like to think about quite a bit. So we can have a red ocean strategy, go and fight other wealth managers and you know people come through for, for a customer, there's Joe, there's his million pound, I want it, I'm gonna fight really hard. Or we can go blue ocean strategy, how do we look at those who aren't currently being served? That might be the people who just put money into cash, cash ISAs or whatever, because I've heard an ISA's tax efficient, that's me doing really good things, and I've put my money in, and inflation's run away with itself and you get no real return, but I've got more than I had last year. So from a psychology point of view, I'm better off, right? Uh, no. And, and actually, it's really interesting because um, 80% of ISA's individual savings mm-hmm. accounts are sitting in cash. Um, and I think they did a report recently that you know the, the majority of the population don't understand what it means. Yeah. And so that comes back to the whole point about finance where there's two sides to the coin. Number one, there's removing the obstacles and the complexity and the jargon. And number two is actually empowering people with the knowledge and the tools to make better decisions. And with all of that, absolutely, technology isn't the answer, but it is a facilitator to that. Absolutely right. Can I, can I jump in, Simon? So I think we've got two representatives in the room which give you the, the kind of base and the talk. And it's institutions like Moolah who will change behaviour and kind of kickstart people into having a different conversation, to use Gemma's great language. But equally, it's people like BlackRock who are, frankly, so big they can afford to take risk. And, I, and I'm old enough to remember the old phrase of destroyyourownbusiness.com from the 90s, mm. the last time when it felt like it feels like today which is, will disruptors survive? And I think the difference being is this time in financial services, they have to. And they're only gonna do that if the real big boys help that happen. We've got a great dynamic going on, which has to center on need rather than sale. So does this mean, Phil, and and I guess to to Joe, that thinking from the asset manager's standpoint, when you're packaging these products to begin with, you've got to be thinking about where it ends up right up at Gemma's products, where it's dealing with people right at the front end. And, And how do we do, how do we move towards that? I mean, it's, it's got to be all about engagement. I think as an industry, we've, um, been behind the times, behind many, many other industries, even sister industries like insurance. Um, and so I think the first thing is about engagement. It's about understanding who your clients actually are. And I think a lot of people say that, but do they really do it? Um, and I think, you know, a face-to-face conversation, brilliant, but actually all the stuff that people are doing through their bank accounts, all the stuff that people are um, doing, you know, on the apps, all that sort of stuff. And so I think that's really important. I do think that within an industry and certainly within the asset management, I can deliver whatever solution. Um, it happens to be that a lot of people have started to use ETFs because they're cheap, they're easy to understand, and they're quite efficient to get access to markets. Um, but I don't think the conversation from, a, from an investment perspective is, is just about the ETF. I think it's about many, many different things. So we probably need to understand, the, as Gareth was saying, the broad array of segments that are now out there that the likes of Gemma and others are now starting to see. We need to provide them with a new set of products from information that's coming in. What, what tools enable us to do that? Is, is tech a part of this story or is it, is it first we need to grasp the customer problem? What, what, how do we go about that journey? Um, the reason why this is, this is so interesting is that um, I think the headlines that usually hit the press are always the extreme. It's, it's um, you know, digital advice is for everyone. No, digital advice is for no one. It's always extreme. And actually what we're talking about here is that it's about collaboration. It's about um, there is a place for different services. Just like, is it, is it purely 100% only digital? Is it purely 100% only face-to-face? No, there's always a hybrid and always working together. And it's about using technology in the right way to cut the costs where you can and automate. It's about respecting and valuing um, the value of 
of a, uh, a face-to-face relationship at the same time. And it's about respecting the different parts that these different players can make so that when we come together, we can be much stronger. Rather than, I do agree that probably a few years ago, it was about a few companies going out there saying, oh, we're going to disrupt and we're going to win. And I think what the realisation has been is it's much better to be able to be an expert in your area and work together. So if we... Do we not risk, though, if everybody's a small specialist, that a f- already fragmented market gets more fragmented? And how do we prevent that? I think maybe there's an inter- interesting sort of tech analogy that in other industries in, in technology, they talk about do your USP and then use APIs for everything else. And I think that probably same thing applies to, to investment management, that you can still rely on the fantastic, you know, it really is the USP of asset managers to be able to invest money and in to get the returns that you want. And then it may be that it's the real USP of wealth managers to provide tax advice and to bringing customers onto that platform and to help them with their story. And then with the new apps, it might be that it's their USP to, to access a different segment of the market. So I think it's about focusing on your USP and also really delivering like the, the right connect connectivity to those other parts of, of the market. You hit a key word there, you said APIs. Um, I've seen Gemma at conferences before. Tell me about PSD2 and APIs with, a, with three bullet points. <laughs> Hit me with the three bullet points. What's oh PSD2? Goodness. Okay, I'll do it in one bullet. I mean, PSD2, basically, you're talking about opening up banking and you're opening up access. So what, what basically they're saying is, is that it's your data. So if you have a bank account, rather than the bank saying, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's, it's our data, it's not, it's your data. So they have to open it up to other services that, what, that you want to use it to. You know, we've got to make sure that we're protecting people's confidentiality and their data. But the, the reason behind this is um, it'll, enable, it'll enable you as a person, as a consumer, to have a much more intelligent and tailored solution. If you can tell another service provider, you can give them access to your banking data. They can give you um, better recommendations and better services around that. So the view is, if we can open that up, and by the way, this isn't so revolutionary, they're doing it in America already, um, and it is your data at the end of the day, it means that services can better serve you. And so from the asset management space, Joe, surely that helps you combine the data in the market with what's happening at the customer level. Yeah, I mean, our play is completely B2B, so I'm helping our distribution partners to do it, but I think it's an enormous opportunity because if you really think about it, when you're looking at, even if someone gives you their entirety of their wealth, which they're not gonna do, they give you a a proportion of their wealth potentially, um, you have very little understanding about who the client actually is. Um, But I think under under PSD2, clients start to give you the access to that data, you can actually truly understand them as people. And this is where you can actually start to um, service them better, provide them with true advice. Um, because at the moment, I don't think any you know advice is a face-to-face thing that happens in the industry. Um, I think we can digitalize it. I think we can offer it to the masses, which is the really exciting thing, right? Probably half the UK population um, can't afford, have no access to advice. Um, you know, dealing with your finances is complicated. So I think once we, you know, the tech comes in place, we have the proper understanding of people, um, then we can end, end up offering a better service to more people. Um, the final thing I'd say is actually when you start to digitalize something, you start to advi- advise. Um, the FCA have a big problem with inconsistent advice across firms. Um, and that happens because you put a human in place of um, thing. So I think it's also an opportunity by digitalizing it to actually make it more consistent. Um, and if you make it more consistent, um, then I think you make it fairer to all. I agree with you, Joe, but here's the thing. By doing that, you raise a big, big challenge, which is advice given at a static point in time without full insight into behavior, which is a way, way bigger determinant of need. So you open up the, the envelope, I think, to behavioral economics, which is fundamentally psychology. 
Yep. So how do people behave in certain situations and what is the pattern of previous behavior, whether it's tracked by a bank account or by investment decisions? What does that tell you about what they're likely to do and therefore the suitability of the solutions, whether they're investment, they're credit-based, they're debt-based or whatever, that come from the advice industry? Because I think we can say sure as eggs are eggs and hopefully Gareth will agree with me mm -hmm. for Bruin Dolphin. Uh, the vast majority of, of advisors and private bankers in the UK and around the world are not behavioural psychologists, for sure. They're certainly not George Soros when it comes to investing money, and absolutely for sure they're not technologists. So they've got to find a different place in the mix. But un fundamentally, understanding behaviour drives the right decisions. So how do we give them that superpower? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. You know, there's, there's some really interesting points here. Uh, if you think of it, communication, I can't remember the exact figure, it's something like 80% is non-verbal. I think that's an element as well you've got to be aware. So it's fine sort of talking about this fully digital journey, journey that you never uh, see a person, but actually how do you take that emotional bit where they're, they're, they're kind of putting it all on black, but they're really shaking at that moment in time and they maybe need a bit of a hand uh, to, to div diversify, perhaps. Uh, Dan Egan, who's one of the behavioural guys over at Betterment in the so Betman being a, a, a long um, standing robot, probably around nearly a decade now, I would think, something along those lines. He was in the UK recently talking about the number one question their financial planners now get. So they introduced people into this digital process this year because they were getting so far and they're really successful. They've got tens of billions of dollars under management. But again, they weren't really breaking into the next level. And he said there was one question all of their chartered financial planners get, every single one, the most asked question. Have I input it into the system correctly? It's true. Uh, and that's a, just a big thing. We just forget that at the end, there's just this little human person. So we can get all into this blockchain, AI, it's all this, it's whatever, it's big data, et cetera, et cetera. You forget there's a person just at the end. And to Gemma's point, and you know, probably everyone's around the table, it's just how do you, how do you collaborate using great technology, but, but maybe understanding that some people just need their hand holding or just want at, that reassurance. At certain points. At, at certain, certain points. points which so I this is, is the question is, what's the competitive advantage of a human in, because historically we appear to have made humans into robots hmm. and trying to get robots to do human things. Yeah. How do you build around a customer need? How do you make sure that, what does this person really want to do? Because this customer centricity stuff yeah. appears to be a bit of a like cargo cult. We all talk about how much we love the customer and we love it, but do we really understand them all the way through to the, to the production of things? There was a really funny analogy somebody said, which is, let's talk about driverless cars. And they said, actually, in a few, in a few years time, let's say a couple of decades time, whatever, will our children, our children's children go I cannot believe that you after a you know after a long night out after you were tired after you had a really long day you got into a car and drove it I mean how much riskier is that rather than something that's automated that you know is using all the, the, the technology and the data points available so it is a bit of a mindset shift as well that, and, and that's getting comfortable with it so how do we get people comfortable with that and and kind of build these new experiences is it through experimentation is it through partnerships what's what's the right thing to do if you're a traditional kind of wealth business and what's the right thing to do if you're a new entrant it's all of the above it's all of the above simon you, you've got to set off i truly believe to educate where we started on this on this cast right is you share information you learn and you share as you go and you expect people to adjust and change their mind to go with it. If you, kind of, if you believe that as a, as a kind of premise, what happens or what has happened in financial services is it's a one-off sale or it's a one-off piece of advice as if that's going to be the solution for the next X, Y, Z years. It's flawed. 
flawed. The pace of information is moving, the pace of education is shifting, and people's behaviour is changing as they go through their life. So you've got to make it symbiotic. And even even in the fact that we saw with like the PPI scandal, etc., you know, relying on the fact that we think we tend to think in financial services, well, if we put up all these disclaimers and all this really, you know, drug, then we're going to have explained the risk to people. And actually, that's not it. You have to simplify it. You have to really put yourself in their shoes, use the, the language that they understand. And if you give them the right education information, you're reducing. There's two sides of risk. At the moment in financial services, we focus on the, the, the risk of selling, that the liability, you know, is on us. But actually, if you give people the information, then you're reducing their risk of misbuying. So you're not just it's not just mis-selling, it's also mis-buying. And if you reduce both those risks... Can I give a real live example of that, Gemma? So in, a, in my previous life, I sat at the very senior end of one of the biggest banks in the country at a time when two things were happening. They were getting hammered for PPI, and they decided to come out of the financial planning industry, and that was in, in my division. So we chose to come out of it on the simple premise that we didn't want to write blank checks to the financial ombudsman for something that we were doing with the right interests of the client in mind. And, and that kind of rippled across the high street banking fraternity and they're now starting to come and look back at it because fundamentally the clients need their help and they're not getting it from elsewhere in the value chain. And I wonder if T's and C's can't be the only tool anymore. Surely, to Gemma's point, you can't just terms and conditions your way out of this. Actually, it's a cultural shift to really understanding what does my customer understand? How can I, be, how can I use technology to understand them better and learn their level of financial education, bring them up that learning curve and really talk to them on a level that fits into their daily lives and solves a problem for well, them? It's back to trust, trust and abuse two sides of the coin. So the, the kind of uh, Gen X generation are much more willing to trust. They don't want to see reams of paper. They'll click and go, but they'll trust that they'll be looked after because they believe in that kind of value chain. You come up to baby boomers or people of, of my age, they don't trust anymore because that trust has been broken by the abuse of a system that was designed to protect them. So you've got this inherent divide, I think, in the kind of generations of, of wealth that we're talking about serving. Uh, and I think trust really has to be regrouped from two different angles. So how do, you, how do you enable people to buy complex things, knowing full well that they are going to be looked after? And from an institution's point of view, you want to sell something that you're actually going to make money on, that you're not going to be pilloried in 10 years' time when somebody changes the rules. And it's a f I don't know what the answer is, but I know certainly no one else has got the answer just yet. And I, th I think we're going, to, we're going to find out how the UK public views this. Um, in 2018 with the return of the banks coming back into the advice market. Um, you know, actually, the UK, compared to the rest of Europe, um, the big banks are conspicuous by their absence in terms of wealth management for the very reasons you just gave in 2008. They do have millions of customers, and they also have millions of customers who've got a lot of money sitting in cash. Um, you know, even, you know, um, there's over a trillion dollars in the, in the UK, sorry, trillion pounds in the UK just sitting in cash, which is earning you know, negatively when you include inflation. Um, and so I think 2018 with these guys coming back into the market and really trying to convert these clients is really going to tell us a lot about the UK public and what their demand is um, for a lot of the stuff I think we're talking about. Is there something about demographics as well? Is there a, a generation now in the workforce who have never really had that advice from their bank? Um, as, as you were saying, the Henrys, the, the sort of high earners, but they're not yet rich. Is there something about how do we bring these people into a world of advice and, and what sort of products and services do they need? Do they expect something to be digital 
by default, but supported with humanity at the very core of it. And, and how does that look different to today's products and services? It's, it's an interesting one. I mean, we certainly think that um, people will be fundamentally in the process uh, for, for the long term future. Uh, we see a lot of people, you know, there's a, I think it's $30 trillion globally that's going to drop through the wealth segments. And that's great. But where do you go if you've got a bit of money now and you need to, some financial advice? The first place you probably go is a parent. You know, it's the same as bank accounts and stuff like that. We, we had a, a few people in recently, um, 17 to 18 year olds uh, in one of our offices and there was about 20 of them. And we said, who's got, you know, where do you get your bank accounts from? Now I was looking for the Monzos and the Revolut and all of those. One person had a Revolut, everyone else was Lloyd's and Barclays and Santander and places like that. I was like, okay, wait, why? Well, that's where my parents bank. So I think you've got to kind of think about how that's going to come through. They're not just going to go straight to technology and make their decisions because these are really long term uh, uh, goals. But we've also got to react to this and say, well, actually, they're coming in with their iPhones. They don't want to come to our offices because they haven't got that amount of time. So how do we use Skype or something like that to maybe go out and connect with them in a slightly different way? It's all about your customer, but knowing that customer. So that customer doesn't want to travel across town and come and sit and meet someone in an oak panelled office or something like that. They want to do it on their phone, they want to they want a WhatsApp, they want an email, they want whatever it might be and a Skype call rather than face-to-face. So you've got to kind of bring some of those and, and we, you know, we're, we're, we're trying these things out. We've got a new service that, that's kind of uh, digital only and that's kind of working well. Uh, the average age of the customers fall falling compared to our um, standard uh, clients and our core service. But again, it's not a, in my view, it's an evolutionary thing, not a, not a revolutionary thing. I think we're also missing out on a certain gap in the market, which I think is really interesting, which is um, quite often we fall into the gap of saying, okay, if we're using technology, it's for young people. It's for young people. And then the question is always, well, young people don't have money. Millennials, gosh, they're lazy people that just want, you know, avocado, want smashed avocado on toast. Um, It's got to be smashed. And it it is, and it is lovely. Um, But, I kind of fall into that gap and I have two children and own a home. So it's just actually, and and what's really interesting is the gap. You've got financial advisors and traditional wealth management targeting people when they're 55 and above, when they're in the decumulation era. And then, as you said, we've got these really cool, funky apps that are trying to be very, very millennial, not even millennial, very, very young focused at people in their 20s. But what we've found at Moolah is actually the people um, that are very interested in types of digital services can be in their 40s mm-hmm. because they, they've accumulated some wealth, they want to do something about it, but they still fall slightly below the target demographic of traditional advisors. And, and also the thing about being tech savvy is tech savvy isn't a young person's thing either. It's a shift in the whole population. Everybody's using technology now in some form or another. I mean, maybe on, you know, let's say on iPads if their eyesight isn't as good as, you know, on iPhones. But, you know, ultimately it's an enabler for lots of different demographics. It was really interesting when I spoke to RFI who do a lot of research in, in the retail banking world. They, they suggest that the UK uh, is second only to China in terms of digital appetite for financial services and has the highest population of digital literate uh, over 55s uh, of any country in the world. Um, and over 40s were, were more uh, digitally literate than the uh, uh, over 30s, which, is, which I thought was a hugely significant finding. It is. And also, we've got a really big issue about intergenerational wealth transfer as well. And what's interesting, again, is people think, oh, the children of wealthy clients, again, they must be young. The children of wealthy clients are in their 40s. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and these are the people that if you do not have a relationship with these children, and I'm, I'm putting my fingers up here, no one can see, children. Air quotes um, were appreciated yeah, on the podcast. Air quotes, air quotes. Um, then, you know, 70% of the time, the assets will go out the door. So it's about, you have to engage people at that level and they're not young, they're, you know, but they're looking for a solution and they're underserved. And I was just going to say, you know, if you think of things like the 100 year life or, you know, mm. and, you know increasing life expectancy, though, to Gemma's point, these 
people, these children could could be in their fifties. You know, they could be even older. They could, and, and that's just going to continue. You know, my son was born last year. He's likely to live, if you look at the, most of the studies, till he's mid-90s. That's the expectation now in, in the developed world. That's huge. And it's a, how do you capture those things? And that's why I say some of it's revolution, not evolution. The evolution helps. And that definitely makes us think differently. And if we don't have people like Moolar or Betterman or Wellfront or whoever it might be across any uh, demographic, you don't think differently. But we've got to understand that consumer a demographic to your original point. So I want to ask Olivia, do you think that the wealth and investment management space is ready for this flip that we've talked about? Because we've, we've got a lot of people in the room talking passionately about understanding the customer, but do we have any um, infrastructural technology, uh, compliance, regulation fees, I don't know, challenges? What's the challenges in the market that might prevent us from getting to this utopia of really understanding our customer? Yeah, I mean, big, big question. There's a lot, there's a lot there. To unpack, yeah. yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Let's pick one. <laughs> Let's pick one. I mean, I think the the reality is that for the last 10 years, especially, I mean, asset managers in particular, but wealth managers too, have just been totally dominated by regulation. That's taken up massive chunks of their change budgets, and that's had to be their focus. Um, I think next year, obviously, we'll see MIFID come in and SMR, and then I think there's hopefully going to be a bit of a settling down of regulation in that context, and people will be able to start diverting change budgets into stuff that's a bit more interesting. I think it's interesting when we talk about innovation in this context because firstly there's the front end of how you engage with your customers but there's so much that could affect innovation in the front office or innovation in what we call the so operations middle office and um, back office even and there's a whole load of cost and inefficiency there that I think you know I'm a big blockchain advocate but lots of different technologies around machine learning around robotics all coming in affecting that area that's really not customer facing at all but but is is going to change a lot. Joe, can you give me a tour of that middle and back office and the front office bit? So one I've gone to Moolah or when I've gone to Bruin Dolphin or or, or or wherever else I may go. Have I and embark, sorry Phil. Mm-hmm. Um, it, when I've gone there and I've dealt with my wealth manager and they've said this is the portfolio you need, we're gonna buy all these things for you and we're gonna move you out of here and, and uh, what happens next behind the scenes? So the way I the way I think about the value chain, so you've got the front end and engagement. I think we're really starting to see some really interesting stuff around people doing engagement of clients. I think the risk analytic engines, the products, I think are seeing some fairly interesting um, innovations um, around the platform, um, platforms such as Phil's built or some of the other platforms that um, the propositions developed on. I think the back end is really, really interesting for disruption because you know we're still faxing orders. Um, in you know, I had to explain to someone on the desk the other day uh, what, what a fax was. was. Yeah, yeah, a new grad, which just made me feel old, and just it made me made me be a little, actually a little bit of ashamed of the industry you're working in. You didn't sing along with the modem, did you? <laughs> Not that I've ever done that, by the way. You know, and I think to Olivia's point, some of the um, the ledger technology that exists, um, I think, is really really interesting in and around settlement cycles, um, in and around. But it takes an industry to move as a whole. It doesn't take a few players like we have in the room today to kind of take that leap. It really does take a collective force. Um, and I think that's the main thing around, you know, settlement in, in a T0 cycle would ultimately have to change the way banks fund themselves, um, which is a massive, massive conversation that no one provider can really have. Uh, but just coming back to that point, I mean, I started in, in the industry in 2002 in our back office function kind of thing. And if you even think of what dividends and corporate actions and stuff, just that area, so how companies pay their profits back to their shareholders or transform, it was all checks. We used to get 
checks all the time. So when it was the first of the month, we were just inundated with checks. Bizarrely, banks changed everyone's life. You start giving someone your bank account details, you don't have to open an envelope, you don't have to get that check, you don't have to employ someone to walk down to the bank. It was that, that type of scenario. Now that's cost, and that means that you know our entry levels perhaps going higher and higher and higher because I've got to cover all of these costs. And that's kind of changed. And I think, you know, and talking about dealing, uh, two firms, EMX and Callistone, came into that area and really said, here's a wealth manager, that's us, that's Brundolfin buying from an asset manager, that's Joe, that's BlackRock. I'm going to send a fax or I'm just going to get the system to do it and I'm going to remove all of that inefficiency, but also remove some risk. Because when Joe picks up the phone to me and he can't uh, decipher my accent because he realises English is not my first language and he puts the wrong decimal place in the wrong place, we've got a big old challenge where this is just, you know, there's the numbers on the screen, off you go. So I think we've got to kind of continually do that, look at all of those efficiencies. And to Olivia's point, we get really excited by the front end because that's what customers kind of see. But actually, if it takes so much friction out of the back end, then you can, you know, start to come into the the different points. So Phil, tie these two things together for me then, because if we talk about how important the customer experience is, what what would solving some of that back end stuff mean for customers? I'm going to take it, take it a different angle, Simon, if I can. So the, qu- the question I'm, I'm getting from this is, is a single player who can do everything from advice through to execution the right answer? So they can take cap costs inherently if they want to. Or is it having many, many small players in a value chain who are connected properly to share data but can be expert in the piece that they do? And I think there's a real discussion in the industry as to which model's right. And this was a question that was asked earlier, where do you specialize? What's your superpower? What's your USP? And do you see the world of APIs developing? Do you see people providing platforms like the, the likes of a BlackRock and the asset managers? Do those platforms start to look more like Amazon Web Services than they do sort of some of the older platforms? And if they do, what does that mean for a customer? I mean, Olivia, do you see that as a, as a possibility? And, and, and how do we start moving towards that? Yeah, I think it's, well, it's interesting because with PSD2, transfer agents are specifically excluded from the, from that legislation because because of the... And for, for listeners, transfer agents? Yeah, so a transfer agent is a, a service provider that basically creates the units of the fund. So it'll hold your, if you issue a mutual fund, it'll hold your customer register. It'll work out how many units there are in it, um, set the unit price um, and then feed cash um, or in and out of the fund. So via the fund accountant in, and into the investment so it's manager. between the manufacturer and the distributor, basically. Yeah. So it's it's sort of easing easing that process, and it's it's not part of PSD two. So all of all of those benefits of sharing data are, are going to be not not available to customers at, at that end from their transfer agent. Um, I think it probably will come. It'll be an interesting to see how how that develops. Take TA transfer agency. So who in the right mind would want to get into that business line today, other than a huge bank who's already got a huge legacy scale? Well, it's interesting because I think that should be the case, that no one wants to get into TA because it's a low margin business. But actually, in the UK, we've probably seen a bit of movement with, with new people entering in, entering that market. And I think hopefully technology is going to help some of them. You know, you see with the likes of FNZ coming in, um, there does seem to be a tech play into that, into that space. But I agree, it is a, a low margin business. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. 
So we've talked a little bit about the customer, we've talked about tech. Let's see if we can summarize this section by saying, okay, so, so what's driving the change? Is it customer demand and, a, and an underserved part of the market? Is it uh, still that there's technology opportunities to take cost? Is it regulation or is it the pincer of all three and, and how, are you, how are you weighting those? Um, I think, because people often ask, you know, again, you're seeing it in the press about how this is a once in a decade opportunity and London's really leading the way in fintech and why is that? And it is because you need those three angles. Um, and again, if we compare ourselves to, let's say, our friend over, over the pond, you know, you've got um, regulation in, in Washington, you've got finance in um, New York, and then you've got um, all the technology in Silicon Valley. And the great thing about the UK is it's much in much closer proximity. And ultimately, to be able to service customers, what, we have to, what you have to do is you have to be driven by demand because otherwise you can have the best product in the world, but if no one wants it, who cares? So if you're driven by, by customer demand, you have to be able to um, deliver, it, deliver it, you know, using the right technology, but you also need to be obviously um, cognizant that you're doing things fairly, et cetera, in the right way, and you're therefore satisfying regulatory obligations as well. And it's really kind of the meeting force of those, of those elements that's driving it. It's the nexus of them all. But I, but I, think, I think there's been a definite shift over the last 12 months in the industry. Um, I think there is a feeling that we've got regulation under control. Um, the targets have stopped moving, um, the volume of it coming down the pipe, while it's still great, um, you know, at, at least we understand what we're trying to hit. And there's been a definite switch towards technology and a focus on putting uh, and investing resources towards technology. So we've got this fragmented market that has had a lot of regulation hit it where data transparency and regulation is, is, is as crucial as ever. We're seeing um, the role of data potentially starting to change, Joe. And, and do we see that um, how we provide that to customers will change? Because to the, to the earlier points, we can't just dump them with data without education, can we? We've got to, we've got to make sure that customers understand this space and are able to, to step into it more. Yeah, and you think about the insurance industry and what sits behind um, stuff like Compare the Market or the holiday industry, but with the amount of data that sits behind lastminute.com, um, I don't think we've quite worked out how to facilitate that. We have all the data, but it sits somewhere, probably not in the cloud, it sits in massive data warehouses. Um, and I don't think too many people that I've come across effectively use that data to better understand their clients and then service them. And I think people are starting to realize that, people are starting to hire data scientists. Um, that word is becoming um, a little bit more thought of. Um, and I think a little bit a little bit sort of stimulated by Payment Services Directive too. Um, but I think people are starting to get on that game. So I was going to say, here's a dichotomy that comes off the back of that though, Joe. So there are players out there today who will go unnamed who can data scrape on an individual consumer and create a picture of their financial position, let alone other things in their life, which would scare the living bejeebas out of that person and probably freeze them into inaction. Mm -hmm. So there's a real custodian sort of duty of care thing for people who own data to use it wisely and whilst at the same time getting, getting the consumer themselves to be more open to share, because many don't, it's the big fallacy of private banks. Again, some personal experience of having this utopian view that they'll tell us everything about their lives and therefore we can make the right solutions for them. People don't. But it isn't interesting that isn't it interesting that Phil that we we find ourselves in that position and have been for maybe a decade or more where people can see from uh, there's the famous study that Google did into uh, I think it was the retailer targets transactions and they could identify um, microscopic changes in purchasing behavior as whether a woman was pregnant or not from just from these these tiny changes it's scary what you can do with data I guess is, is that point but also to me in a, in a financial services market where we've used FPML and fix and Swift and ISO 20022 and and KYC AML as being the the least amount of data I need about somebody to give them an account 
is there a balance here of, okay, I only look at these data fields that are compliance related, or is it, as to Gemma's point earlier, we're the custodians of your data. We can access more of it, but hopefully you trust us because we educate you and we build that trust with you by building a relationship with you that has a human face on it. Well, it's a killer question. So I can urge you using it for something else. So let's imagine you're one of the big four banks and you've got millions of clients and tons of data and you've got great behavioral economic insight through data on those people. Would you have the courage to turn a client down? Right? Because that's where you really lead to is I don't want that client because I think they may be reckless, for example, and technology is telling me they're reckless and it's not the kind of client I want. Or am I going to continue to be greedy and say, well, I'll do that regardless because I take the boxes for compliance. I think that's another moral dilemma that technology will create for us to deal with downstream. Equally, on the other side of the equation, again, using moral dilemmas, if you have people who are of relatively low affluence and behaviorally doing all the right things, but they need more help, will the big institutions step in to do something where they may not earn any money from it? It's part of their moral constitution. Can you help grow your customers' affluence as well? And can you see that as a business case? You invest in them. It's co-investment in the truth. So do you think form. it's a step forward to actually have and analyze the data so you understand a little bit about more your client base? And whether you do something individually or as a collective set of clients, um, so that you deliver a better proposition, you deliver more education or whatever it may be, um, I still think it's an enormous um, uh, sort of step forward in the right direction for the industry. I completely concur, Joe, and, and get to get up high horse now, I'm getting warmed up. Is, is businesses like, like Gemma's in Moolah, I'll give you that an example of someone around the room. So we have to have people who are creating new ways of attacking the host to make the host, and the host here being the bigger institutions have got the cash to invest and spend. We need innovation to attack them, to force them to deploy capital in the right way, to make it work for the whole. It's probably a bad explanation of it, but you're not going to get, I'm not, I'm not naming the names, but the big four banks in the UK got huge budgets. Do they really, really care about this stuff when you get down on the ground? If you ask them the question of do they know their client data, they'll say, I'm not sure where my client data is, let alone what I can interpret from it. And they're not going to change unless somebody's kind of disrupting the norm. And well, I mean, this is Olivia's point as well about the change budgets are always seen as being this massive black hole and there are these giant programs of work just to keep up with compliance, whereas they're not thinking about things from a startup perspective. I mean, Gemma, talk to me about building Moolah the first couple of weeks and months. What were your priorities versus like how a large change program might look at it inside a bank? Well, uh, I mean, the thing is, the, the complication nowadays is that banks are starting to set up innovation arms. But ultimately, um, the big difference is that, because obviously I come from an institutional background, but the reason why, the reason for kind of spinning out of that to build something like this was the ability to be able to actually get things done without having to go through committees. Mm -hmm. So there, the two issues with big institutions are quite naturally, through no fault of their own, but they have legacy technology and also multiple technology systems. So to be able to innovate that, already you're starting not from a blank sheet of paper, which we do, but actually from, you know, again, again, things you have to kind of work around. And then secondly, that whole political and bureaucratic angle of, well, okay, if I want to get this done, I have to engage that department and that department and that department. And it just means that time-wise, it just takes longer as well. So the view that we had when we started, again, we always started with a collaborative angle was, why don't we go away and actually build something that would it would take far too long for the big institutions to build. But actually knowing that if we build that as a solution, we can then come back and collaborate. I really like that way of phrasing it. Um, my co-founder at 11FS, Jason, always talks about about uh, we don't 
do innovation, we don't try for our clients, we are a startup ourselves. So we've got that fire of like, if we don't get this done, then the mortgage doesn't get paid and whomever's kids is with the grandparents and so on. There's also this, this motivation piece. Um, but then once it's done, people learn from it. I do think that um, Monzo entering the market means that real-time notifications are a thing. Revolut entering the market has changed how uh, international payments look uh, or will start to and so, so will TransferWise. And it's changed the conversation and maybe Moolah and Scalable, who, who I know BlackRock have invested in, start to change that conversation. So I'm very conscious of the time. There's, there's two last questions I, I gotta ask everybody. One, just because it's zeitgeist um, as we're going into the end of 2017 when we record this. Should uh, wealth advisors be advising their customers to buy Bitcoin? <laughs> Gemma, do you want to take that one? Oh my God, I literally just went really quiet for a reason. I don't know. Do you not notice, Simon? We all look down at the table there. None of us are going to give you a view on that. Right, let's be bold about it. So, Ooh, I like that. Why? The vast majority of people don't understand what it is, let alone how it works. And they don't understand the underlying fabric of its safety. So who's the absolute custodian of the value? But I'll give you a second thing, so I'm going to be a bit controversial. I don't think there's much difference in the risk of owning Bitcoin as there is owning a, a £5 note. It's a promissory piece of paper that people having inherent belief will be there to be redeemed. There's no difference. Interesting. I think I'll maybe go for the um, sort of technical answer to this, which is that at the moment, if a wealth manager did tell his client if he thought it was a great investment, buy this, buy this thing, there's no institutional way that that wealth manager could give them access to the Bitcoins. They'd have to be telling them, open a Coinbase account or whatever, do it, do it yourself. Um, so I think that's going to be an interesting trend for 2018 of like institutional custody for Bitcoin. Will we see people moving to, so Coinbase have opened custodial capabilities, yeah. Zappo have had it for some time. Will we see the traditional custodians start to move into this space? Interesting question. I think about it from two things. So the first thing is, um, actually, this is getting people excited about whether you call it an investment or you call it a currency or you call it a way of thinking. Um, I think it's getting people excited about all three. And everyone is talking about this. If you look at the amount going on on social media feeds, everything like that. So I don't think it's a bad thing to get people to start to think even about investing in the first place. It's getting people to pay attention. Um, so one of our growth interns here, uh, Pet, who's sitting in the corner there, showed me a message from one of his friends sort of saying, where do I buy one of them? And he said, one of what? And he said, whatever they're called. Uh, and, and I think there's something interesting about the fact that it's made the news that gets people thinking differently. And if it's done nothing else, it's done that. The other thing I would say is we've had an enormous amount of um, incoming inquiries um, from wealth managers about a Bitcoin ETF. Um, which tells me uh, very clearly that their clients are calling them up asking, how do I get access to this stuff? But the, the, the SEC have said no twice, I think, to the mm -hmm. The SEC has said no twice, but well, let's let's watch that one because I think SIBO maybe maybe. Can we just be careful that. with this a little bit? Sorry, I was just going to come in here because the thing that, you know, Joe, you said about investing and that gets people investing and it does. But I, I get really nervous about loss aversion and, and the psychology of someone, you know, your, your friend uh, diving in, getting there, I'm riding a crypto wave, look at me, and then it's halved. And then you're, you've put your hand in and you've been really badly burned. Suddenly you don't like investing. Exactly. And, and I think that's where, you know... Warnings and trust and all these things that, that the wealth industry and has been doing for some time and wealth managers have been doing for some time. I think there's, there's definitely a role for that. Look, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut a short because we are low on time. We shall have to do this again. Let's make it a semi-regular occurrence because I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, if I can start up by asking uh, Gemma, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Oh, www.moo.la. Nice short URL. Olivia? 
Uh, I think just Google Olivia Vinden. I think I'm the only in the world. Wow. Okay, that that was a mic drop for a. You had a great URL, Gemma, but the only one in the world. Well, that's pretty cool. An old school Google whack for those who remember such things. Fantastic. Dave Goldman would be proud. Uh, Gareth. The cool kids would say Brune.co.uk, but we're a bricks and mortar business. Come and find us in one of your local cities. Love that, Gareth. And uh, uh, Joe. Uh, com or on LinkedIn. And Phil. Um, Brilliant. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being here and thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast and drop us a review on iTunes, if nothing else, for being the only person with the name in the world. That, that's worth, that's review worthy all by itself, Olivia. Uh, and we love reading those reviews. We have read them out loud in the office. Uh, that's all for this week. Until next time. Thank you.